Happy Friday, y'all. It's November 25th, 2022, for those of you catching us hot off the press, so to speak. (laughs) And holy cow, has this month flown by. All of November, we have been diving into an OCD-related disorder series, and it's been absolutely phenomenal. I feel like I've learned so much by gathering with the OCD family community at our family table, and I can't thank our guests enough for imparting their wisdom and lived experience with all of us. Today marks part four of this dynamic series, and the topic is hoarding disorder. So make yourself comfy, because this episode is so interesting and informative as we get a better understanding regarding what hoarding disorder really entails. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Today in the States, it's what we call Black Friday. Although, have you guys noticed, I feel like I've noticed Black Friday is quote-unquote starting earlier every year. It's like early Black Friday, early, early Black Friday. Like maybe November 1st, if not earlier. And for our fam outside the U.S., I'm guessing some of y'all may be aware of this time of year in the U.S., adjacent to our U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving, because I imagine it's an opportune time for commerce at large. So platforms like Etsy or larger manufacturers, especially if products are made outside of the U.S., likely ramp up production in preparation for Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, all the way through Cyber Monday. And let's not forget extended Cyber Monday, (laughs) which are all about the acquisition of stuff. It's marketed for some consumers to save some dollar-dollar bills at Christmas time. But the term Black Friday actually points to businesses' opportunity to be in the black, a financial term that more or less means it's an opportunity to have more profit than debts or losses. And as many organizations push to meet certain goals toward the end of their fiscal year, it's a huge opportunity to gain financially. So while the shoppers are getting their deals, companies are pushing to work their way up and to the right which for my fellow nerdy birdie chart fans out there, simply means increasing gains or profits, pushing for the best possible growth in terms of business metrics. And from the consumer side, Black Friday has morphed into an ideal opportunity to snag those wish list items, new appliances, or big ticket items you never knew you needed, but who could pass on such an incredible deal? So all in all, it's a time to get stuff. And get it while it's cheap, allowing you to stretch your dollars even further, presumably so you have more money to get more stuff. And hey, 
I love myself a bit of irony here because when I mapped out this OCD-related disorder series, I didn't intentionally schedule our discussion about hoarding disorder to fall on Black Friday. But it's really interesting to me that it did. And you might be wondering, why? Why is a holiday season marketed as getting deals for us consumers even related to hoarding disorder? Isn't that something where people are living in or quite literally on piles of trash? I'm just getting a good deal. I'm just shopping or acquiring wisely in a way that holds meaning, that has purpose. Well, certainly, I think the good old entertainment industry has given us this collective image of people living in spaces that have grown into, from the outside perspective, a garbage dump of sorts, or squalor, as our guest Gabrielle Fagella will talk about today. But as you may be shocked to learn, are you sitting down? (laughs) Production companies haven't quite captured reality on hoarding disorder. You're shocked, right? I know you're shocked. So join me as I talk more with Gabrielle about the differences between hoarding, hoarding disorder, and strategies for treatment. Because it gets tricky, and it can be quite sticky for loved ones trying to navigate and support their hoarding disorder sufferers. Also, a quick housekeeping note as Gabrielle and I tease out a better working understanding for hoarding disorder. We're going to address how hoarding tendencies or even disordered functioning can pop up within or alongside other mental health disorders, such as obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, also known as OCPD. We will lay a brief foundation for the differences here, but I wanted to note that we will be taking a much deeper dive into obsessive-compulsive personality disorder next week as we end our OCD-related disorder series with Dr. Anthony Pinto. But because it can be so prevalent within OCPD, I really thought it important to have a better understanding of what hoarding disorder is on its own, because with the publication of the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Treatment, it was the first time hoarding disorder was even given a diagnosis on its own, which in my opinion was really necessary because there's so much to it. So keep an ear out for that Easter egg. As we learn more about hoarding disorder, with Gabrielle Fagello. Gabrielle is the president of OCD Midwest, an official affiliate of the International OCD Foundation, as well as the owner of Palladium Counseling Group out of Ohio here in the States. She is a task force and hoarding disorder expert extraordinaire, as she really is known for her amazing work with hoarding disorder, OCD, and other OCD-related disorders. So let's lean in as we learn more about hoarding disorder. Gabrielle Fidela, you are such a dynamic wave maker in terms of trying to spread education, competency and training, getting that word out through OCD Midwest. And so I will say I had the pleasure of getting in contact with OCD Midwest so that I could participate in the Behavioral Therapy Training Institute. So I am super appreciative of your time today, Gabrielle, and Thank you for coming and talking with us about hoarding today. Well, you're welcome. And really, Nicole, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Um, there's so many myths out there about hoarding, and it's so much more prevalent than people realize. So I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. So in today's culture, I think when people think hoarding, they maybe think of like wanting to keep stuff for themselves 
or there's a concept of course we have hoarders the show that has its own kind of following of like whoa this is crazy intense and certain things on there may be sensationalized for tv but also there are some pretty important pieces for us to understand that are misunderstood about hoarding and so in this ocd related behavior series i'm so glad that we're we're getting an opportunity to talk about what's going on when we talk about hoarding disorder so can you help us the ocd family community just get a better understanding of when we're talking about hoarding disorder what exactly is meant by that and i realize it can range sure yeah well, you know, everything is on a continuum. Mm-hmm. And so we actually have two things we can be talking about that can be problematic for families. One is hoarding, but there are a lot of conditions in, that cause people to hoard. The other is hoarding disorder, mm-hmm. which we're more familiar with when we think about OCD. So for years, hoarding was thought to be OCD, another flavor of OCD. Right. We now know over the research over the last 25, 30 years that it's not related, possibly, but it's really its own animal. I think, you know, typically when people think of hoarding, you know, you made reference to like the shows like Hoarders and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think many people automatically the image of squalor Mm -hmm. comes up. Mm -hmm. It was those things that happened sensationalized on TV. But actually, those conditions, people have hoarding disorder that live in squalor is a very small percentage. Mm -hmm. So hoarding disorder is not just about holding on to stuff, although that's key. It oftentimes includes that excessive acquisition, the bringing in, whether that's, you know, compulsive shopping or dumpster diving Mm -hmm. or taking the free packets of sweet and low. So a lot of times there's the excessive acquisition But the linchpin really is the extreme difficulty in letting go. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, and you may have clients like this or people in your personal life, they shop a lot. Mm -hmm. And if you open their closet, they still have, you know, tags from things they bought two years ago. But they don't necessarily have a problem letting it go. They may not have gotten around to using it, but if for some reason they need to let it go, to make room maybe for more stuff. There's no emotional distress. Mm -hmm. So the linchpin is that difficulty and the incredible distress experienced when someone tries to let things go, Mm -hmm. usually the excessive acquisition and then the accumulation of the clutter. Mm -hmm. And again, clutter isn't always squalor and clutter is not always hoarding either. The United States, especially, we have a clutter problem. We've got a lot of stuff. Right. But again, you're looking for those functional and emotional pieces as the underpinning. Okay. You know? So that's a really good point because I think people do imagine just piles of trash and garbage and moldy things and people mm-hmm. needing to crawl, tunnel mm-hmm. through to get to the upstairs. Well, that can happen. That is an extreme and a much more rare sight of how it can progress. And just because you clutter, because I bet most of most of the people listening, right? OCD family, yeah. right? We can go, oh yeah. If you know, if you open our garage, if you open our pantry, there's a couple different right. junk drawers. There's there's something, right? And so exactly. we can clutter and we hold on to a lot of stuff, and and we can go through these periods of let's minimize, let's do that. But if you're able to let go, if you're able to minimize, if you're able to Mm -hmm. reorganize the way you think about that 
or donated to somebody that might need it or downsize, then that's a different issue than hoarding. And so really what you're saying is there is that emotional piece that becomes very, very distressing. Mm -hmm. And you have that acquisition of, and it may be important sentimental things, or it may be what someone would think of as garbage or trash that... Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when when you look at, you know, the DSM diagnosis, you know, one of the criteria is that that kind of holding on the excessive acquisition of things that probably other people would not see Mm -hmm. as important. Mm -hmm. So but that other piece is the impairment and the functional piece. You know, can I use my home and the objects or the furniture in my home the way it is intended? And again, probably most people have a corner or even a whole stretch of a counter that to use it for dinner, they're going to have to clear stuff off. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about, you know, the kids have dumped their book bags and, you know, their tablets on that chair at the end of the kitchen table, right? right? Probably most homes have that. We're looking at at least all three of those domains. And there are plenty of people out there. Again, this is really prevalent, uh, probably a conservative estimate is about one in 20 of the general population. So not even the mental health population, the general population. Mm -hmm. So go to any target and count off 20. And there's probably someone who's struggling with hoarding disorder. And it's, it's more prevalent. And it really can you may go into someone's home and not realize that they have a problem with hoarding, because they've been able to keep three rooms of the house clear, where we have people. As it progresses, though, you know, we're less likely to let people into our home. We're more likely to be in a state of disrepair, multiple purchases of things because I can't find it, debt because I can't find, you know, bills and tax forms and that sort of thing. Right, right. And so, yeah, you get to the point where I can't even have people over because I have all these things. And I, at this point, I'm meeting capacity to be able to hide or block it off or um, Mm -hmm. really be able to entertain and so then we go okay well then that's that's interfering then with your home functioning the functionality of being able to use your home as a dwelling and a place where people can gather and so that's a really helpful distinction there can be an aspect of hoarding and this gets really kind of tricky so not to go too deep in the weeds here but mm-hmm. with obsessive compulsive personality disorder yes. there's certainly not always but there's certainly a high propensity for hoarding out of a different function though a different function the function is typically i need to be a good steward of the environment and it's wasteful to not do this in the correct way and so i'm just doing what i can even though everybody else sucks and they don't (laughs) can be kind of the general mentality of that Mm -hmm. but can we talk a little bit about because that's a great example where hoarding can pop up in other places but the function looks different than it does in in hoarding disorder Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up OCPD. It looks very different. That's almost like the organized hoarder. Mm -hmm. And you're exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. The function behind it is different, whether it's, you know, being a good steward and hyper responsible and a little bit better than other people, Mm -hmm. or whether it's I want to be helpful. So I'm going to save all this information from the 50 contiguous states in case someone needs it or if I ever plan a trip there. Right. 
So, but you also find hoarding in a lot of the developmental disabilities or intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. You sometimes see hoarding or what we would identify at first blush as hoarding in someone who is chronically and severely depressed, mm-hmm. where things just pile up. They don't have the energy. They don't have the motivation to throw things out, mm-hmm. um, to get cleaned up, mm-hmm. right? So there are lots of conditions where you can. And again, I think like most mental illnesses, hoarding disorder, hoarding behavior is really just an exaggeration of normal, right? Mm-hmm. There are plenty of you know examples in nature, in the animal world of animals that hoard. Think True. of ferrets and raccoons and certain types of birds. Mm-hmm. And I think this is similar to that, you know, and there's so much shame involved that as family members and clinicians, we'll talk about family because they are integral in in both being kind of victimized and a partner Mm -hmm. in recovery. Mm -hmm. There's so much shame involved. I think it's really important to kind of neutralize. Most mental health struggles are distortions and exaggeration of you and me, right? There before the grace of God. God. Yeah. 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 No, it's always, you know, there used to be, this is cliche, and we'll see if this sticks as an analogy. Sometimes I throw them out, they don't all stick, but we'll see. You know, there used to be this whole movement with like six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon, right? Like this was an old thing. Like somebody knows somebody, knows somebody, oh yeah. You know, you you can figure that out. We are all one or two degrees away from our neighbor here that may have hoarding disorder and may have right. any given struggle. And we are more alike than we are different. But Absolutely. I think there is so much fear of the unknown. And so how could somebody be like that? Oh, my goodness. But it's like, mm-hmm. well, we can all be a little extra in different ways. And I love that example that you point to in nature because... I mean, people aren't going around diagnosing animals with with <laughs> right. mental health disorders. They're just saying, well, that's natural. That's a natural instinct. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how can we look at this and go, this was something natural that then grew into excess. And so there we can have some of the similar flavors of OCD where things can be a normalized behavior just going into excess. Right. And that can lead to some distress. So we're going to talk about today the impact that family or partners, Mm -hmm. uh, adult children, the impact that both hoarding has on them when they see their loved ones suffering with it and experience Mm -hmm. all that goes with it. And then also, I love the way you framed it as partnering in treatment, because as the family community is finding out with all of these things, it's so hard But it's so powerful to be Mm -hmm. one of those loved ones because we do have some impact on the environment. We have some impact on the external support that we can give to the sufferer. So I would love to dive into that a little bit more in terms of the dynamics of family. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one thing that's interesting about hoarding compared to a lot of other mental health struggles especially the OCD and related disorders, it's really the only disorder where you can't keep your symptoms hidden. Mm -hmm. Not for very long, at least not from your family, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe from the neighbors or, you know, uh, someone who knocks on your door. If you think about like the BFRBs, certain OCD rituals, you know, people can keep that hidden for a long, long 
time. True. So I would say the negative effects of hoarding start earlier Mm -hmm. because there's not that period where the disorder, for example, BFRBs has been going on, but nobody yet knows. Mm -hmm. And while I hate seeing you pull your eyelashes out, it doesn't affect me as personally and as functionally Mm -hmm. as your hoarding disorder does. And so, you know, if you look at the timeline, what's also unique about hoarding disorder is that it increases on its own, Mm -hmm. right? Research says every five to 10 years Mm. without intervention. So most things increase, but it's it's really kind of predictable. Mm. So if you look at the timeline, hoarding disorder, the tendency starts much earlier than people thought. You know, how we came to become aware of it was with senior citizens, Mm -hmm. you know, decades and decades ago. And health or mobile meals would pop in and see this place and reports would be made. And so for a long time, there was kind of the anecdotal theory that it's because of material deprivation from the depression. Right. Most of those folks who live through the depression are not with us any longer. Mm -hmm. And we still have hoarding. And in fact, hoarding is increasing seemingly exponentially. Mm -hmm. So it's not material deprivation. We we do know that emotional deprivation plays a big role. So it starts much younger. Mm-hmm. It really starts in even like middle school age, mm-hmm. 11 to maybe 15. And certainly I've had clients where younger, except something that you mentioned earlier, there actually is a gatekeeper there. Mm-hmm. You didn't use that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have small children. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And anybody who's a parent, when a kid goes, you know, to someone else's house or to school, Mm -hmm. uh, so many parents do what in the room? Or they try to clean up or they try to, you know, (laughs) make it look like this is the way it always looks. But we we don't, yeah, we don't need the, you know, the one arm doll anymore. You know, we do the sweep under the floor and that sort of thing. And so the tendency towards hoarding might start very young, but we've had gatekeepers as well as for a child limited access, whether monetarily or just kind of mobility to be bringing stuff in, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So a a lot of kids will bring in little things, trinkets that they found, Mm -hmm. um, rocks that look like hearts, or maybe just a cool rock and, you know, Mm -hmm. or twigs and different things. And they may collect different things, especially... If it's if it's an interest or maybe they're in something like a Boy Scout, Girl Scout, some kind of club. Mm -hmm. And so where would you differentiate the difference between somebody starting something just for extracurricular joy uh, Mm -hmm. and somebody starting to show kind of early, early signs now that we can see in hindsight? Similar to pediatric onset of OCD, right? Young, you know, what the developmental normalities is kind of that rigidity repetition, lining up, you know, your matchbox cars and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. What again, you look at is the emotional reaction, Mm -hmm. the intensity and the length, if something goes wrong with that collection. So most little kids will give you a strong reaction. If you're beginning to have kind of the the pathology, if you will, kick in, it's going to be a big reaction, Mm -hmm. you know, of what we'd say in DBT, that the reaction doesn't fit the facts. Yeah. And DBT being dialectical behavioral therapy. You know, let me ask a question here, because sometimes for kiddos on the spectrum, they may have also a similar rigidity and reaction and maybe aren't 
able to communicate or quite process a way to communicate what's upsetting about having mm-hmm. somebody move their line. And so certainly you could have ASD and grow up to be a hoarder, Absolutely. but also it's very different in terms of the utility. Again, if we look at the function of that, and sometimes mm-hmm. it can be hard to tell. And so can you speak to to that? Is there any kind of things to watch out for in addition to that to help differentiate? Could this be neurodiversity, just preference mm-hmm. or hoarding? Yeah. So especially when you're talking about a kid where it might, it might be struggles or experiencing neurodivergency, you'd also be seeing some of those other kind of stereotypic behaviors, mm-hmm. but you're exactly right. It's very, very kind of cloudy at that nexus of OCD, ASD, and possibly the starts of hoarding. Mm-hmm. So especially when you talk about intensity of reaction for kids, perhaps on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. In those cases, I think I'd be saying kind of what am I noticing besides that besides you know nobody can touch those leaves or twigs or pebbles or whatever am I seeing any of those other signs oftentimes by that age you know you have already seen or are seeing some of the stereotypic movements there might be you know ticks not that they're not in kids who are going to go on to develop hoarding disorder so really takes a keen eye Mm -hmm. you know if there are any concerns, it really takes a professional evaluation, not a TikTok evaluation, <laughs> because there's so much that looks similar. Yeah. What I will say about TikTok is I think it's an advantage to having social media in this day and mm-hmm. age is it can can open up curiosity for aware- for yeah. awareness, yeah. but that's very different than evaluating and saying that's what's going on here. So if yeah. you can relate to the influencer in a video, great. Be curious about that. Let that open some more questioning. And if you have the questioning, go ask somebody at your school. Ask your kid's teacher. Mm-hmm. They'll be very happy to team with you on what they're observing. Talk to your pediatrician. Talk to the family doctor talk to a therapist and Mm -hmm. that would absolutely be a great thing to notice but I will say and I have I have some autistic children and they present in different ways and there was a lot of that lining up but Mm -hmm. we were seeing it and was at a much younger age I would imagine at middle school age Mm -hmm. they're probably not still quite at that developmental stage where Mm -hmm. they're just lining up and repeating and lining up and repeating and very upset if somebody touches their car And so absolutely, I would think if someone is on the spectrum and neurodivergent, it's not going to be isolated to this one area where they're processing just this one thing in this way. It's going to encompass a lot of how they process the world because that's how their beautiful brain works. And Mm -hmm. so looking at this on its own and going, hmm, I'm noticing a big, strong reaction, bigger than what maybe my my kids peers would have in terms mm-hmm. of a reaction yeah. uh, that's a good thing to be aware of like hmm okay all right worth noting worth worth kind of floating along to co-parent to your support people to to your team so yeah. okay so you you would notice that early on just some big emotional mm-hmm. real connection and particular kind of rigidity in the play or how things can be touched or approached Right. Don't move that. That was here. Did you move that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And then so, you know, as the child gets older, 
when they start maybe driving or, or getting an income from a job, babysitting, whatever, mm-hmm. you might start seeing some of those signs. Something to be aware of also is that hoarding tends to run in families. We didn't used to think so because there's so much kind of focus and animus towards the identified hoarder in any given family, Mm -hmm. but hoarding definitely runs in families. So that might be something that we'd be looking at also. Yeah. Some of the first, oftentimes in high school, these lockers can be a mess. Mm -hmm. There's lost homework and papers and the rooms can be a mess. But again, you know, what teenagers room, you know, is pristine. (laughs) Socially and functionally, oftentimes the first real problem with hoarding disorder is when we lose the gatekeeper, when we leave the, you know, nuclear or parental home Mm -hmm. for the first time. So whether that's getting our own place or going out to, you know, to a university and you've got roommates, Mm -hmm. you know, and the struggle to keep your area kind of contained. Mm -hmm. And then you'll just see throughout. So and then if that person gets married, although the marriage rate for people with hoarding disorder is significantly lower, mm-hmm. certainly than the general population, even for other mental health conditions. Being married can help, you know, again, you've got kind of a gatekeeper. Some accountability. There, <laughs> right. Accountability, death or divorce of the spouse. You see an uptick in those behaviors again. And so this this, you know, increases every five to ten years. Mm-hmm. And creates incredible strain and resentment within the family. Yeah. So because the feelings that many family members, spouses, children, siblings get is, you know, your stuff is more important than I am. Mm -hmm. You know, your stuff has more value than I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Plus, it's really hard to be trying to navigate your own life, right? If you can't get into the bathroom or the hot water doesn't work, or you have to eat at just the corner of the table, or, you know, you can't get out of the house smoothly in the morning because nobody can find anything. Right. And, you know, sometimes we see some of the the planning in terms of an organization show up Mm -hmm. in some other places, like within ADHD or sensory Mm -hmm. processing disorder, certainly can show up within autism as well where maybe our stuff can start to take over a surface area. Mm-hmm. But but I think the distinguishing factor, again, is in most cases, if you're like, your crap is everywhere, move it, or I'm moving it, and you move it, there's not a big meltdown about it. It's like, right. oh, well, I'm glad they did it. It's less work for me right. to do. You know? Yeah. And in hoarding, this would be an assault, really, on, Absolutely. On, if you're moving my stuff or you're kicking it around because you're mad, you're kicking me. Mm-hmm. Yep. I will tell you the two words that over the years of working with people with this condition that I've heard over and over because oftentimes families just get frustrated or housing authorities, legal authorities are involved and someone does a full clean out, you mm-hmm. know, without the person's permission or sometimes even awareness they come home and and doubt yeah the two words i hear most frequently are violated and raped and again this population has a high rate of trauma Mm -hmm. so these cleanouts are ineffective Mm -hmm. the person is Mm re-traumatized and since really the the bringing in and the holding on to has been a strategy for managing their emotions what do we suppose happens 
Yeah. You've just created a greater need, right? right? I have to, I have to regulate. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm going to probably have to uh, almost overcorrect in this situation because I feel such a void that I might go even, even more, you know, Mm -hmm. into collecting and acquiescing things. And it's, it's very, very difficult. One of the things that on, I haven't watched a lot of hoarders. Generally, mm-hmm. I don't watch a lot of shows that, that um, depict mental health because they often mm-hmm. just make me mad. I'm right. Like, That's not what we do. Uh, but I can appreciate that people are interested in learning more. And I think that is something, a strength to kind of mm-hmm. a silver lining to pull out of it. But, you know, my husband has watched it before and he was watching it once and he said, it's, you know, they're just going through like these moldy bags and the family, you see, sometimes certain family members are taking care of their loved one and trying to help and also participating in the, yeah. oh, but we can't get rid of that. That was from my right. graduation. And it's like you graduated 40 years ago and right. it's mm-hmm. moldy. But also, what I don't like about that show, and again, I can't say that I've given it a real honest shot, but what I don't mm-hmm. like from what I from what I have seen is they really do kind of expedite the process. And there's a lot of frustration on the behalf of the team because they, they're, this is gross, it's disgusting. We talk about that shame piece. We're just mm-hmm. layering on shame. So, you know, in the one episode, and I don't know how this goes for most of them, but in the one episode where they go back a year later, yeah, it's 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 just as bad, quote unquote, if right. not worse. And I think, what did you expect? You expect mm-hmm. to go in, take the person's belongings because they got to help sort through these yeah. things? Like, yeah. how- Well, because there's this still this myth. You know, in the general public, maybe even with family members in the mental health community, I think in housing and in law enforcement, which we typically take a legalistic approach to hoarding disorder in the community, mm-hmm. that it's about the stuff. And of course, you know, you can scratch your head and say, oh, my gosh, who is saving, you know, refrigerator full of molded, rotten food? Mm-hmm. Um, so much, I mean, health compromised in these homes. And so mm-hmm. we can scratch our head and we can get very moralistic and we can say these are character flaws, but it's never been about the stuff. Right. It's been about emotional struggles, definite cognitive impairments, very specific cognitive impairments. I'm so glad you mentioned ADHD mm-hmm. a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. People who go on to develop porn disorder, their their brains and their executive function, mm-hmm. you know, are very much like ADHD. They have incredible difficulty with organization, decision-making, categorization. People are always surprised when I say there's a high rate of perfectionism in many people who go on to develop hoarding disorder. And they're like, what, Gabrielle? Except between that all or none thinking and the perfectionism, if I can't do it right, I don't do it at all. And so it's not about the stuff right? That's not the problem. The problem is how I relate to the stuff and what the stuff means. And my difficulty with having capacity to do anything Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah, if you think about this stuff in terms of not stuff, but an extension of the person. Absolutely. Really feeling like an extension of the person. And it's there when they come home. It's there if it's, you know, and and to you, you might go, well, that's absurd. 
but it's it's providing a different function. And we can mm-hmm. look probably at anybody's life and go, well, I think the reason you like this is absurd. Okay. I mean, well, right. feel, go look, ahead and feel that at, way. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't look develop. at how we decorate our homes, the cars we choose, uh-huh. if we have an air freshener or not, if we have what music we listen to, right? Our things, again, normal are for many of us a representation, maybe mm-hmm. not an extension, but a representation. Mm-hmm. We also know that most people or many people go on to develop this disorder have difficulty. It's easier for them to attach to objects mm-hmm. than to people. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not that they're not necessarily you know, lonely or want connection, but it is much easier to attach to objects, you yeah. know, and Again, you look at the role of trauma and intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 So, there's a sense of safety and no, and it's consistent in knowing what to expect. And mm-hmm. yeah, if you think of a lot of people having gone through trauma, it impacts them relationally. And, you know, but is this extension of you going to impact you relationally? In a way, it can be comforting mm-hmm. to that yeah. to yeah. that person. And so in the same way that, you know, somebody else might go, a spoonful of Hagen does is really comforting to me. Exactly. Yeah. And so if somebody were to be like, how dare you? What's wrong with you? You and your spoonful mm-hmm. of Hagen does. You'd be like, like <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> it's right. It's a strategy for emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. Right. So the bringing in the acquiring. Right. I mean, how many T-shirts and bumper stickers do we need to see about retail therapy? You know, who hasn't had their spoonful or pint of Haagen-Dazs when they're feeling whatever, down to celebrate? So the bringing in of stuff, no matter how that is, is a mood enhancer, Mm -hmm. right? I feel better. I feel loved. I feel special. I feel victorious. Mm -hmm. And then the holding on is a mood regulator in that it prevents disaster or catastrophe, right? Mm -hmm. It prevents making the wrong decision and throwing something out that actually was a value Mm -hmm. or getting rid of something because we've all had it. As soon as you get rid of it, now you need it, you know, prevents the angst of decision-making itself, you know, where it gets so mired down. And so I think it's so important for family members to know and, and to really see if you try to put blinders on or minimizing sunglasses to the stuff and the type of stuff and see that really these are strategies to regulate our emotions, which we all do, but Mm -hmm. we have different strategies. I think it's just so important with our clients to neutralize, right? Language is important. Let's use neutral language. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, it's frustrating. Yes, you're preventing your family from living a life. And let's at least try to understand it because throwing more resentment and shame as you've been doing has not changed a situation. Right. You know? Then there's the, the vicarious and the shame by proxy, right? For family members too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? that's a really good point. And, and, you know, in terms of where hoarding can go from like subclinical to clinical, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard because as you're saying, you go through these different experiences in life. And different developmental things hormonally. You just think about mm-hmm. all the changes we make through given given periods of time. So if every five to ten years, this could really go up a notch. Well, if you left for college 
And you got married and you came home and, you know, it was, yeah, they got a lot of crap. But then your dad passed away and you come back and your mom is in, like, in your opinion, just living in filth. It's mm -hmm. it's hard to see where, because for you, you, last time you saw her, I was like, oh, yeah, she's got a lot of clutter. But it's just, you know, that's right. mom for you. Yep. And you've yep. known that to be mom for all of your life. And now mm -hmm. we're in this completely different zone. It's usually not so gradual. And if it is, then they're not so shocked <laughs> about right. about the differences. And so coming back in and going, holy, what what in the world happened here? What's wrong with mm -hmm. you? And immediately mm -hmm. that shame, which is just going to make the person go yeah. oh, to their stuff yeah. because they're going to go, I'm feeling upset. I'm feeling distressed. I, mm -hmm. I'm going, what is kind of my safe space here? Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm going to give you two more words that I hear frequently. So I've had Twitter on doing qualitative research on this, but two words that I hear most often when I ask clients to kind of describe kind of the meaning of their stuff, of their hoard, right? Mm -hmm. Two words I hear most often is either nest or bunker. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Two very different, right? Mm -hmm. Conceptualizations. Mm -hmm. I mean, both keep you safe, right? But one is more warm nurturing. and fuzzy and nurturing, mm -hmm. right? And the other is, you know, survival from yeah. assaults from the outside world it's like atomic bomb is coming so we need mm -hmm. to be able to make it down here yeah yeah mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. Yeah. and if you look at that both both situations in their own way kind of have a dire quality to them because if you're in the nest you need to provide like the mm -hmm. nest is important why do we nest when we're having children why do we why do birds nest to provide that safe space for mm -hmm. the inhabitants to live and grow. And then also the bunker is definitely gives you another contrast in terms of there's going to be an explosion. There's going to be something really mm -hmm. bad and we need to be able to survive indefinitely. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah I'm really under threat. Really under yeah. threat. Yeah. It, it mm -hmm. feels very punitive and very pejorative and very driven by fear and anxiety. So you got to right. you, you got to look at that and go, OK, it's either providing for the nest, which if you if you're a parent already, you already know, mm -hmm. like that is like I've got to provide. I've got to be able to do that. That's important mm -hmm. or under threat. And so I think that that's really interesting to hear that feedback. And I think helpful in terms mm -hmm. of connecting and having empathy for right. what that person is going through. So it's really an extension of themselves that can come mm -hmm. out of these very, very deeply meaningful places. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the family then coming in and they can have also some vicarious shame and certainly you were bringing that up. Let's talk about what can we do? So because we may have people listening that are going, okay, well, I'm there. I'm like, yeah. I'm not trying to, <laughs> I'm not trying to shame it, but it's disgusting. It smells it, right. It's, it's gross. I'm worried. Like what is going on with her? It's a fire hazard. It's a fire we can't, hazard. We can't find our medications. We can't write. I mean, the, the consequences are real. I mean, really, this is a potentially deadly disorder. Right. When we think of, I mean, all those just as a couple of brief consequences, but safety, especially this is a really hazardous disorder with really high harm potential mm -hmm. for the, the individual themselves and for family members and first responders and anybody who needs to be in that house. Right. 
So they're there. So when we talk about treatment, and there's you know many, many more reasons why people, you know, in terms of personality style, why they hold on to things, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned like responsibility and sentimental and identity and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So this is a notoriously frustrating and difficult illness mm-hmm. to treat. Mm-hmm. Most people who've been treating hoarding disorder for any length of time got to it through OCD. Yeah. And OCD makes the therapist look like a rock star because we know what works if we're doing the right thing and you've got client buy-in, look like a rock star. Mm -hmm. Hoarding, not so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number one and probably most pivotal is very few clients with hoarding disorder have insight into their condition and behavior. Mm -hmm. And so for maybe your listeners who aren't familiar with insight, when we talk about insight, we talk about an individual's awareness, number one there is a problem, right? the role that they play in the problem, what contributes to the problem, and maybe the role other people's or the environment play with the problem. And most, most people with mental health struggles have some level of insight. Mm-hmm. The insight tends to be very poor, shaky, and oftentimes absent in hoarding disorder. Mm-hmm. And people scratch their head and also, Gabrielle, my God, you know, they, they're sleeping on top of their bed on piles of paper. You know, they just have goat pads getting through. How can they not see there's a problem? Right. Um, there's no insight. And it's not that they're not aware, right, that other people have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. They've been yelled at. They've been bribed. They've been coerced for decades. But there's no real buy-in for many that there's an actual problem. Okay. That makes it very difficult for any kind of clinical or community help. And, of course, so frustrating Right, right for family members. Absolutely. Cuz yeah. within OCD certainly it can it can be a struggle having insight about mm-hmm. the obsessions and compulsions, right. right? But what we see as people start to engage in the treatment is a real gain of insight. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they may still get stuck in it, but they have the awareness now that they can go, "Oh, that was oh, I got yeah. I got tripped up in my OCD on that." That is different in this situation where and and it's different than reality testing at large. So when we say is somebody experiencing some delusions or some psychosis, we're looking at broadly we would see reality testing being mm-hmm. affected. Here it's they they can appreciate that you don't like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, right. They're, right. They're aware. Yeah. Noted. Got mm-hmm. it. Um mm-hmm. but At the same time, they don't see the problem with it themselves. And if you were to just take things or Mm -hmm. just throw things away, being helpful, quote unquote, they would feel like they were raided. You know, it would feel invasive. It would feel intrusive. And so that is very, very hard. So I would imagine even getting the person into treatment, let alone engaging in the treatment, would be a real struggle. It really is, Nicole. And I think you'll hear this from most people who treat hoarding. So in all the years that I've treated hoarding, and I am known as the hoarding person kind of in my community, I have never, ever, ever worked with a hoarding client who came to me for hoarding. <laughs> never, right. never, never. They've come to me for anxiety, social anxiety, depression, maybe ADHD, OCD, that sort of thing. And eventually, you know, it was discovered that, and oftentimes not voluntarily 
offered even sure. once the therapeutic alliance, but, you know, maybe missed appointments or complaints about can't find a permission slips for kids and they had to miss the zoo field trip and that sort of thing, kind of, you know, deductive reasoning with a clinician. Mm -hmm. I've never had someone come to me and say, hey, I understand you're the hoarding person. I think I have a problem. Mm -hmm. We either find it out through something else or a family member. Right. Brings them, forces them, you know, ultimatums them, that right. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's often the thing. Family members are like, oh, crap. We got it. Yeah. And yeah. so we get these calls or the, again, because the insight's not there, they're coming in for something else, which, yeah. you know, speaks to a strength that they are willing to work and engage in treatment. But again, it would be like, you know, we really need to work on your eyes being brown. It's like, what is yeah. my, my brown eyes? <laughs> like, why do we need to work on my eyes being brown? It's fine. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry if you have a problem with it, but it's just yeah. what it is. Right. 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 So yeah. so building that insight can be inc incredibly frustrating and it can be very, very difficult. So mm -hmm. if you don't have adequate training and adequate support either, you could easily burn out, I would imagine, trying yeah, to provide some support. So you get people in the office one way or the other. And what mm -hmm. does treatment look like? So we do have CBT specifically formulated for hoarding disorder. And sometimes you can get clients the buy-in with that. This is a really slowly treated disorder. Mm -hmm. I mean, change is incremental. So I would say that primarily there are three approaches. So for example, next month I'm doing a workshop for human service professionals is the intervention of harm reduction. Mm -hmm. So harm reduction comes to us from the folks in public health mm -hmm. as it relates to substance use and HIV. Sure. So the mindset of harm reduction is, is this person or this population ever going to completely stop their harmful behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Sharing needles, unprotected anonymous sex, that sort of thing. Sure. No. Is someone with hoarding disorder ever going to be cured and never have those tendencies again? No. no. But when you look at the dire, deadly consequences of this disorder, harm reduction is okay. What can we do? And remembering that your client doesn't have insight. What can we do to help this person contain mm -hmm. or better manage this behavior? Understand the house will never be on the cover of a, you know, House Beautiful magazine, right? Sure. Martha Stewart will never come over and say how lovely, <laughs> right? What can we do that keeps this person safe, mm -hmm. right? And reduces the likelihood of harm. Mm -hmm. Whether you agree with it or not, whether you think there shouldn't be piles everywhere, that there shouldn't be yogurt that's, you know, three weeks past expiration, that doesn't matter, mm -hmm. right? What can we do and how can we get their buy-in that mm -hmm. reduces the harm? So that's harm reduction. So that's considered more of an intervention. There is now harm reduction therapy, but that's more of an intervention. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding is for a lot of folks, it's much easier to get a buy-in that way. Mm -hmm. Hey, no, 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 you don't have to, but we have to have the windows and doors clear, have to make sure we know where your medicines are. So that's one approach. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me a little bit of 
body focused repetitive behavior treatments as well, because it's realistically, it's not going to be and there is an egocentric gain with Mm -hmm. the behavior for them with the hoarding for them. And so similarly, how do we prevent us getting to infection level? And how do we how do we manage that safely? And kind of rein in some boundaries around that. Right. One question exactly. that I have, though, kind of with that piece, yeah, is if you have a client, say, that's coming in for depression and you learn by proxy of your time or maybe somebody else in the family reports it, to mm-hmm. talk about all the crap they had and, you know, whatever. How do you get, how do you help increase that buy-in there and say, okay, because to them, they might go, hey, I already got this part down over here. What I really need help with is the depression. That's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And so focusing on how I can rein something else in that I don't have a problem with mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't going to be my focus. You run into that in trying to shift if they're coming in and you're treating something else as their primary kind of reason. Yeah, very much so, Nicole. And so what I try to do is help the client kind of connect the dots mm-hmm. between, you know, because I can't imagine what it's like. You're struggling with depression. You just know how heavy that is, right? And that black dog, always the, right? And then to have, you know, a loved one, you know, just on me all the time, mm-hmm. you know, that cannot be helpful for the depression. Right. You know, so sometimes we'll get the buy-in that way, right? Kind of the, the back door connecting the dots, you know, could we get this relative to shut up and get off your back uh-huh. if, right, you just kept your medicine in one place. Right. You know, the other thing very commonly that you're seeing in the literature for this population is the carrot and stick approach. Mm-hmm. Because one thing we didn't talk at length about is eventually, if it gets bad enough, the involvement of authorities. Right. You know, every township has zoning, cities, county. If they happen to be in you know, metropolitan housing, have housing vouchers, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a wide, a really disparate way that authorities handle this. Right. Um, and you can have families that their form of accountability is doing welfare checks because I'm not even going to deal with it. I'll have the police go over and do a welfare yeah. check. And if you're yeah. not familiar with a welfare check, it is you expressing some kind of concern about the safety or safety of others or the well-being. I haven't heard from this person. Mm-hmm. They, they're they usually very responsive. And the police, mm-hmm. you know, the intention is good overall, but it can feel very, very violating to the person living there. Mm-hmm. And then depending on their housing situation or if they receive assistance or any kind of eligibility program to be living there, yes, the, <laughs> there's often not a lot of empathy if if you walk into a situation like that it's usually a very punitive response yeah it's interesting what we find is among first responders in general that uh, the firefighters are seen as the good guys so in some communities so we have buy-in our local task force we have buy-in from some of the fire departments in the area Mm -hmm. and so they tend to be responded to in a much more welcoming way mm-hmm. and of course it's it's such a threat to them and to you know emt and and that sort of thing it's kind of a side note when we talk about the care and the stick and firefighters a lot of people don't know this there are some communities 
where firefighters and you know EMT because remember it's, this kind of grows as you get older, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're more frail, you know, got cognitive changes, etc. But where they've gone into homes that are hoarded, mm-hmm. you know, once, twice, three times, whatever. And then said, hey, you know, you need to clean this up. They may give them numbers if there's a place around, you know, to help them, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they tell them when they come back for whatever reason and they don't see progress, you need to know that if this house catches on fire, we will not come for you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't realize that. So we don't imagine that. Yeah. Right. Every time I've been saying this for years and every time I say it, I get kind of a shiver. Yeah. And in, in their station, you know, they have the houses that have, however, their symbolism, an X on it or sure. different companies do different things because they will not risk the life and well-being of their first responders in situations like that. Yeah. I mean, that is really, yeah, I've, I've got, a, I've got yeah. goosebumps as well. And it's, yeah. it's one of those things where people don't necessarily understand the amount of risk that that mm-hmm. presents to people trying to help someone out or to the risk mm-hmm. of that loved one should there be yeah. a, a spark that catches something on fire or you know any mm-hmm. any any sort of thing sure. um and and i think it's so important because i'm guessing most firefighters unless they're on the task force or you know something like that which mm-hmm. i'm sure you have a broad collection of amazing professionals from the mental health field social services law enforcement mm-hmm. firefighters first responders but yeah i think most probably don't understand what's going on there and then most right. people don't understand kind of where the limits are for their safety mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also then where we've exceeded safety for their loved one. Some families listening might go, well, okay, so I'm not supposed to just go in and throw away their crap, but they could not, you know, be helped in a fire if, if it's that bad. Like, what do I do with that? And so, yeah, yeah. so we mentioned harm reduction, harm reduction as an intervention. And with that, with harm reduction, you know, if, it doesn't necessarily have to be led by a mental health or social service professional. Mm-hmm. And we would use family members, you know, there would be a team. This is definitely a disorder that is resource heavy. Yeah. It probably is the most resource heavy mental health struggle out there, mm-hmm. you know, between clinicians and, you know, cleaning crews, if you get to that point and, you know, maybe area agencies and aging and doctors. I mean, it's just really resource intensive. Right. But we try to encourage family if they're not completely burned out. There are a lot of broken ties in this particular disorder, you yeah. know, where I'm just done with them or or the person, you know, with the hoarding struggle said, you know, slam the door and don't ever come back if this is so hard for you. You know, that sort of thing. It's really heartbreaking. But we try to get family and or friends as part of the team. And we really, you know, need to be teaching the individual some of these almost doing cognitive remediation, Mm -hmm. really, Mm -hmm. you know, and giving control back to them with decision making. So another besides harm reduction then is CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, that's been modified by hoarding for mm-hmm. hoarding. And the focus there is a lot of that kind of cognitive remediation, the distorted thinking, 
you know, difficulty throwing this out because it feels like I'm throwing out my mother. You mm -hmm. know, I remember one time I was doing a home visit with a client that I had a well-established relationship with. She was at the point where, you know, she was decluttering and she had all these photographs, which are very, very common. Mm -hmm. And there was this photograph, really blurry. I couldn't tell what it was. It was like from the 1960s, you know. I mm -hmm. said, what is this? Can you tell me about this, this story in here? And it was a picture taken like 40 years ago or 50 years ago. Sure. She goes, oh, that's the back of my mom's head when her hair began to thin. Huh. Mm -hmm. And mother was still alive. And I said, and what do you want to do with it? Well, she looked at me like I had like four heads. Right. And I was just like, you know. Just what do you want to do with it? Like how ridiculous I would even ask. Of course right. she wants to save that, mm -hmm. you know, and then that gave me the opportunity to, you know, use some of the skills and thought distortion, but that would be like throwing mother out right? if I threw out that picture. Right. You know, I like how the language you use of, you know, tell me the story about that or what's the story with this? Mm -hmm. Because there is a more emotional, personal connection. It's yes. not just trashed to this nope. person. Nope. Mm -mm. There's a significance. And if it were gone, and you might be like, oh, well, they even know it's gone. There's so much stuff. But if right. but you're right, you might throw something away, and they don't notice. Mm -hmm. But yeah. similar to if someone came into your house and threw something away. Well, yeah, so yeah, actually, you know, think about that. Like, I sometimes like, like, where do we get off doing that? Right? You know, and, and can't believe that that person is irate at us. Right? right? Yeah, yeah, where's because you think about it in terms of, and I'm sure there's spouses listening and going, I do that all the time, <laughs> or parents of kids with like too many toys and they haven't played in, with this in a while, I'm getting rid of it. What's different here is it feels like, you know, we get home and there's been a robbery. This thing right. is gone. You notice if, if your wedding ring's gone, you notice mm -hmm. if... Yeah, and you might, to you, this is a piece of trash. To them, it is a piece of them. It is an important thing. And mm -hmm. they might not notice it's gone right away. They may never notice it's gone. But they also could notice it's gone. Right. And then how, what does that say about you that you felt entitled to just come and throw that away? Mm -hmm. And so it can be hard, especially when you're so frustrated and so impacted maybe by your loved ones hoarding. But at the same time, trying to understand where they're coming from mm -hmm. and really how, what's happening in the brain because because of the lack of insight, you can try to rationalize with them all too right. long. Good right. luck. You're going to frustrate the crap out of yourself. But go ahead. You know, <laughs> see how that works for you. Yeah. Neither yeah. of you are going to enjoy that process and it probably won't be productive. But mm -hmm. there you go. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. the brain, again, isn't going to, they're not, you're not going to say something. They're going to be like, oh my gosh, you're right. That's trash. It's kind of, it, it's kind of like, you know, when we're working with parents of teenagers and, you know, you've heard the same phrase 50 times. And it's just like, so do you think it's 51 or 1,001 that suddenly your kid's going to have this epiphany and mm -hmm. say, oh, right. Thank you so much. No, it doesn't work that way. Right. You know? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The yeah. same way they're so doesn't yeah. have a big impact on you either. <laughs> that so yeah. hasn't convinced you yet. So CBT has been modified specifically for hoarding. Like so many conditions, especially with the OCD conditions, kind of good luck finding a clinician who's knows about it, let alone is trained in it. Yeah. However, you know, what I tell my clients is, you know, if you can find really a good CBT clinician, 
most, in my experience, will work with you to get up to speed. You know, they'll they'll put the extra time in. Not all, right? But many many of us will to to get up to speed. And in fact, you and I were talking about that. You know, before it started, just about even OCD or yeah. ERP. Yeah. So now the third approach, which is hopeful, and there there are groups out there, but again, not as many as we need, is group therapy and does not have to be run by a professional clinician. These can be peer-led. In fact, some are designed to be based on the book Buried in Treasures. Buried in Treasures, it's an oldie but a goodie. And oh, more than a handful of years ago, a group treatment protocol was based upon that. And the research is really cool in that the outcomes between peer-led and professional-led really are almost like no different. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I know with our task force, the Akron, Ohio area, that's something that we're really putting a focus to. Can we get some of these groups started? A little north of us in the Cleveland area, they have some already running. But that takes care of that problem of not enough clinicians. And when it's peer-led, I think what is so dynamic about peer-led groups and support groups anyway is being able to feel less alone and understand that other people can relate and are right there with you and they can share highs and lows with you and they can say this worked or this was crap or they could say this is mm-hmm. I still don't have buy-in but I do find that my time with you know Aunt Susie is a little smoother and right. for that reason it's worth it's motivating enough for mm-hmm. me to kind of keep at it and so that can be a really powerful support yeah. but also I would imagine depending on the region that you're in that it would be hard sometimes to find a group and Sometimes yeah. people are already having a hard enough time engaging in their own treatment. So to say, well, but you could lead it. They'd be like, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I don't want to lead it. You lead it. So, yeah, I mean, I would imagine it can sometimes be hard to get that off the ground running. But it can also be really helpful just to make some friends. But to also right. know, like, hey, I'm not alone. And we know from the therapeutic standpoint that when we have more resources, and if we look at kind of having more groups of people, not just your family who's getting mad at mm-hmm. you about the stuff you have, but having other groups of people, other people that you can engage with, it provides more external resources for you to be able to lean into and go, yeah, I'm not alone. And I can't talk to my daughter about this because she's just going right. to chew me out for it anyway and tell me I told you so or say something passive aggressive or mm-hmm. say you can't see the grandkids unless you pick up your room or whatever. Yep. But yep. Or, or sometimes these people are getting threatened to be put in assisted living or nursing care, you know, mm-hmm. try to hoard crap there. And yeah, it's absolutely. like, it, it's so punitive. It's like literally putting your loved one in prison, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're, here's your cell then. If you can't play our way, here's your cell. And I'm not saying, because I know there's a lot of stigma around nursing care. So sometimes nursing care is just absolutely needed. There's it's a whole nother yeah, sure. ball, oh, yeah. ball of wax, but it can feel when the reason you're put there is because you're a mess. You can't, your life is destroyed mm-hmm. and you're taking away something that feels so protective for them. Mm-hmm then you're really, you. it's like they might as well be in prison. Yeah, it's, it's just such a difficult situation because also, you know, compared to other mental health struggles, even depression, especially get old, 
this is also a very medically ill population. A big percentage have multiple chronic illnesses, Mm -hmm. you know, diabetes, liver issues, obesity, so it's mobility issues there, and just thyroid dysfunction. There's just, you know, so much. So I'm struggling already. And I totally get, I totally get, you know, mom, dad, sis, you know, I can't deal with this anymore. You know, you're not safe. Go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And just what you said, what happens, happens. We start hoarding around our little area in the nursing home or assisted living. So my heart goes out to every player involved in this scenario because there are no bad guys, you know, and everybody is negatively impacted, including the various, you know, agencies and services that are on board. And this is really a condition that takes a village to treat. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another piece that I... I try to remind myself, I try to remind whether it's the sufferer, OCD sufferer, hoarding sufferer, loved ones. So we have to take some time too for ourselves and for self-care, right? Mm -hmm. Because you are going to burn out with this if you're just constantly knocking heads about what's with this crap and this, there's more stuff here than there was last Mm -hmm. time. And we talked about this and like Mm -hmm. literally... If you're really upset and frustrated with your loved one and you can't take it, you don't need to call them and be like, by the way, I can't take this. <laughs> so I'm going, but go take, do something, do something that is going to fill your cup then do something. It doesn't have to, that. and it doesn't have to be used as a sword against them. Recharge yourself so that when you go in, you have as much battery <laughs> as you can as mm-hmm. much energy as you can to practice. You can be loving. You can be firm still. Mm-hmm. You don't have to accommodate the hoarding behavior. But that's different than shaming the other person. Right. In thinking about that, because accommodation is certainly something we talk about here in the OCD family community. Accommodation mm-hmm. sneaks up and, and layers so gradually and snowballs yeah. over time sometimes. That it's Mm -hmm. hard to kind of notice where am I accommodating, where am I not? You know, we'll always have Mm -hmm. Christmas at my house because we can't go to their house because Mm -hmm. we can't fit in the door. And so, you know, at what point do we kind of help educate family members about what does accommodation mean when it comes to hoarding disorder? And Mm -hmm. how can we help learn and educate ourselves about what's helpful versus what is going to be more shaming or hurtful? Yeah, yeah. So professionally, I start with that, you know, from the get go, again, many times as a family member who seeks treatment. And happily, even though this is an incredibly difficult and we are not anywhere near elegance when it comes to treating this disorder the way we are, let's say, with OCD, you know. So happily, though, there are increasing number of resources out there. Mm-hmm. I wish every city had a task force. They don't. But there are some great task forces with really good websites that provide education. So San Francisco's there, the way they deal with hoarding is just phenomenal. I know our website and our task force quarterly, we have a, a Zoom presentation for community members. We dress kind of hoarding 101 and accommodation and that sort of thing. And so there's some beginning, some universities, Cornell, for example, I think, yeah, has kind of a, a hoarding section. So address accommodation. But of course, this is really tricky. It's not as clear cut as providing alcohol to someone who's struggling with alcohol use um, right. disorder. 
And then that resentment, much like in all these other illnesses, oftentimes it's so high that mm. you might have a spasm. Well, why do I have to, you know, mm. forego such and such because she or he, you know, can't get their act together. Right. I think it's also important to empathize with the, the loved one, you know, the one who's doing the accommodating, right? So all accommodation starts from love. Right. Okay, so if it means, you know, we keep this, you know, clay model that Johnny made 42 years ago, that make her happy, okay. But over time, right, accommodation turns into let us just get through this as fast as we can mm-hmm. so we can move on, mm-hmm. right, and mm-hmm. get to the next step. Right. So I think it's important to explain that, you know, to people that you understand it started from love and has become kind of twisted and enabling. And I, because the anger is palpable, mm-hmm. oftentimes for loved ones, and once you really understand what's going on with person with hoarding disorder, I think you have to be really careful to understand and be really mindful, so intentional of remembering that they're both victims mm-hmm. of this condition. Mm-hmm. You know, they both play that role. Yeah. And in in that, I think it's often similar to what we will talk about within OCD of it's not me against you. It's us against that, right? And again, if the person's having a hard time with insight, sometimes it can feel like, but it does feel like me against them. They're not on, they're not on my page here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so trying to find that common ground and reward, if we look within just kind of hoarding the reward driven, what is pleasurable? What is, what is Mm -hmm. gratifying about stuff, then we can also look, I'm, I'm sure then to like, you're saying the carrot and the stick reward models for compromising some of these harm reduction safety behaviors that can help both increase their physical safety, Mm -hmm. uh, and your physical safety, but also, you know, tapping into something that is kind of working with the current of how their brain is processing this. Yeah. and going, okay, they're reward driven, and we can we can work with that. I think it's hard because a lot of times then people also will then yank rewards away. Well, you didn't make this reward. You don't deserve this award. You yeah. didn't win this award. And it's it's recognizing that failure, we're so often to be like, you failed at that. And it's really important to realize that even if the person didn't make the goal that we put, mm-hmm. which might have been too big of a goal in the first place anyway... Mm-hmm. So are we making realistic goals, but also like they're making effort. And so they're trying. And do we absolutely honor that? Well, they're, they're trying. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Nicole. So especially with the harm reduction, harm reduction is not just kind of behavior. It is a whole mind shift. Right. And you just, and that was beautifully said, any progress is progress. Any effort is effort. And it can be painstakingly slow. And motivation waxes and wanes, a lot of waning, not just for the individual with the hoarding, but for the kind of the team members, the family members or friends or therapists, you know. So we're using, you know, motivational interviewing skills throughout the entire process. Mm-hmm. Harm reduction is progress is progress. Right. You know, Celebrate the yeah. wins. Even if you mm-hmm. still feel like you're standing in the same space, well, you didn't go two steps back. Right. And if you didn't, and even if you went a step back, well, we didn't completely fall on our butts, though, did we? You know, Mm -hmm. and and celebrate what we did get out of it. 
And the mm -hmm. fact that, hey, you guys are having a conversation more and a different kind of conversation than what this would have looked like last week or last month. That's progress, too. It's mm -hmm. huge. And we yeah. live kind of in this instant pot culture now where we want to take a raw chicken and have it done in five minutes. And like you're saying, this is a crackpot boil. This is <laughs> going to take time. And, you know, I'm sure it would be great for you and it would be great for that person, too. Wouldn't yeah. it be great for that person if they could just feel better? Yeah. Sure. But that's yep. just not the way it works. It's not like I'm getting the, um, I'm going to date myself, but the old, like, uh, bewitched episodes where the woman. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Samantha, she could wiggle. I always wanted to be Samantha, Yes, right? Samantha was uh -huh. so cool, and Samantha could wiggle her nose, and the thing yep. was done. Well, you know what? We don't have, we don't have those magic wands. No. But there is magic in having relationship with one another and being able to put some work into that not all work is easy sometimes we have to knead through a lot of stuff and we still might not come out where we had hoped but you guys are now engaging in a new way and there's hope that even mm -hmm. at a slow simmer this can be a safer situation and now you guys aren't just fighting or yelling or slamming the door in each other's faces now you're feeling a little more on board with each other and that the value of that is immeasurable mm -hmm. yeah. yeah absolutely so setting realistic goals is really important finding out where you can look for resources i think i'm sure there it's it's just so important to be able to educate because there's so many moving parties and entities that can come into this the police can come mm -hmm. into it housing social services, you, nursing, all sorts of different things, especially if you're looking at medical conditions where you might have somebody that needs a home nurse and they yep. come in and they're like, oh, meh. And, mm -hmm. and authorities get called. And so, like you said, Gabrielle, not every place has a task force in place, but the places that have some resources, and you might be surprised, you might be dealing with hoarding with a loved one, and you may even be in Akron and go, I didn't know Akron had that. Right. Encourage people, and we don't take advantage of it enough, I think. You know, most communities are hooked up, or many, to 211, mm -hmm. you know, and to call 211 in your area um, and find out, you know, hey, my husband's got a problem with hoarding. See, you know, what's what? We've made a concerted effort to train all of the kind of the major mental health agencies in our area. And I'm happy to say that like three, three or four biggest ones have like one or two identified kind of hoarding clinicians now. That's um, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the biggest problem, of course, is when you get to the point where things do have to be cleaned up and cleaned out. It's incredibly expensive, mm -hmm. um, depending on where you live in the country, six to $20,000, you know. So that, that piece is still missing. Where yeah. do we get the funds, you know, yeah. for this? Yeah. And I mean, yeah, you may have somebody come in, you know, you think of carpets or floors, sometimes that would be ripped out or replaced, mm -hmm. depending mm -hmm. on kind of the extent of damage. Right. And these are the similar crews that get called into crime scenes and are cleaning mm -hmm. up, you know, mm -hmm. lots of messes. I think we can all imagine what they're cleaning up. But it's not a cheap process and it's not an easy job. And so, you know, certainly people need to be compensated for the services that they're providing, but it is it is definitely a challenge. So that that speaks to the policy piece 
And mm-hmm. so if you're listening to this and you go, okay, I listen to the podcast because maybe I have somebody, a loved one with OCD, but I'm also, you know, on the city planning community or I have a, I have mm-hmm. a friend here and, and you know what, like that is important. And absolutely, this could be a great opportunity to go like, how can we contribute to the conversation? Do we have a task force? Maybe I'd like to be on it. Do we not? Maybe I could reach out and say, like, how can we make this happen? Mm-hmm. Also, in a, just a couple months here in January, it looks like you guys are having another virtual conference, which I love virtual learning conferences because mm-hmm. this is literally you can access this from anywhere in the world. Yes. 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 Awesome. And certainly it's not just a problem here in the U.S. You know, mm-hmm. we are more knowledgeable about what's going on in the U.S., here, but certainly this is something that could be attended from the UK, from Australia. We have people Absolutely. All, yeah. all over listening. And so it looks like January 28th, there is going to be the third annual OCD and hoarding virtual learning expo. So it'll be an opportunity to learn more about hoarding and it's being sponsored by OCD Midwest and Chicagoland Hoarding Task Force. And so I'm going to put information about that expo on the podcast, the blog page for this episode. I always cite. I'm also going to give you guys some good information there about Gabrielle, where you can learn more about what she's doing. If you're in Ohio, if you're interested in getting involved in the Mm -hmm. task force or maybe how to set up a task force in your area. Absolutely. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think often I find it depends on the discipline for sure. But I find when I go in and I I say I can offer some insight here about OCD, for example, for first responders that may run into Mm -hmm. it or, you know, whatnot. They're very appreciative of being brought in the loop and they see so much as first responders that they can become advocates great advocates for needed services and they're they're living day in day out on the front lines and seeing what's out there and so i think you know if you have a a first responder in your life first of all thank you for the incredible Mm -hmm. work that you do and if you'd be interested in learning more, we would love for you to feel more supported in learning more about mental health in general can be very helpful, but also hoarding because you are going to certainly run into mm-hmm. these calls and these situations where you go, wow, I don't know how to make sense of this. And if we can start to put together the pieces, knowledge is power here. So putting these puzzle pieces together, we can all be a part of the solution of bridging people to the help that they need. And so I I so appreciate you coming and letting us know more about yeah. hoarding the complexities underneath. And it goes to say with any mental health disorder, this is not a measure of IQ. This is not a measure of intellect. We can have brilliant, amazing minds struggle with hoarding, or we can mm-hmm. have, you know, a young child starting right. to evidence some of this. And realizing that not jumping to judgment, but just going, okay, there's something more. So how can I be a part of the solution? Mm -hmm. How can I be a part of the solution? We all have that role we can play. So I think that's really helpful. In terms of you talked about the group for people being a really helpful model and the research (laughs) is showing good things. What about for family members? Do you know of any kind of virtual groups where family members are getting support where they can kind of vent about this is driving me nuts and I'm well, trying to not take it out on them, but I'm ah. Yeah. So off the top of my head, I think what I would do would be to direct your listeners 
to, so we now have like Clutterers Anonymous, Messies Anonymous, and Children of Hoarders Mm. groups. If they Google any of those, I think I would probably have them start there. Okay. If they're readers or want to listen to like Audible or something years ago, but it's still solid. Michael Tompkins, who I I love, co-authored a book entitled Digging Out which is specifically written for loved ones of people who struggle with hoarding. Still available, you know, different editions. I think you could probably get it on Audible or someplace like that as well. Sure. And I'm finding even the public libraries nowadays have such a rich, vast library of audiobooks in addition Mm -hmm. to hard copies of books. And so I think that can be really helpful. And, you know, you might be in the car commuting a lot or maybe you're driving mm-hmm. to see your loved one and you go oh I can kind of preload myself with some yeah. some information as I go in and out you know give yourself a little bit of that pep talk give yourself a little bit of that yeah. insight and be able to go in there and and bridge in the way that that person can meet you at and yeah I think ultimately at the end of the day setting really realistic goals which goes for anything pretty much in life setting realistic goals of what's possible. But the good news is even if it's hard and it's a tricky disorder and there's limited mm-hmm. insight, there's hope. Mm-hmm. There's hope. Right. And we have to keep on keeping on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. the more of us that that get in the conversation, whether we're directly impacted or not, the better. So as we say here on the podcast, we are better together. And I so appreciate you taking the time today, Gabrielle, out of your busy schedule to just impart your wisdom and knowledge about hoarding disorder. You're also very accomplished in treating a lot of OCD and OCD-related disorders and all sorts of different responsibilities as the president of OCD Midwest. So thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm really, really honored that you are able to help put a proper spotlight on hoarding what it is and how we can help. Well, thank you. This was really a joy. You are a gem. And thank you so much for your podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much. Absolutely. Thank you for that. For today's Intrusive Thoughts segment, I wanted to reflect on some of the takeaways we've learned from our conversation today. First and foremost, conversation. <laughs> that word, that act, it's key. The hoarding disorder sufferers are going to lack insight, as we've discussed, not maybe. They are. They're going to lack it, period. We know this to be true. So while you can't rationalize this away for them, you can start having conversations. Conversations with each other or even conversations with your loved ones, but also seeking treatment and teaming with a therapist that really, really gets it. That makes such a difference as well. If you go to iocdf.org, there are a number of links to help you learn more, But also, there is a provider search on the website, and I'll put a link to this on this episode at ocdfamilypodcast.com, but you can enter your location area and filter by hoarding as a specialty. If no search results are displayed, open up that mileage selection to include a greater search area. There may be telehealth options or local recommendations regarding a task force or community group that can support you, your loved ones or at least continue this important conversation. Our largest OCD family community membership is here in the U.S. 
But our second largest is in the UK, followed fairly closely by our Canadian fam. And so I went on to the provider search just to see, you know, who can I find here in the States? Who can I find in the UK? Who can I find in Canada? And while we certainly have some here, we have providers in all of those regions as well. When I looked into the UK, for example, I found resources in both England and Scotland. And in fact, there was a stray provider that showed up in my search of the UK from Italy as well, which is great to know because we have some Italian fam too. Same with Canada. You can search for different specialty areas, which include OCD and OCD-related disorders. So if you wanted to filter by hoarding, that's a practical tool you can use today. Another option, if you're already seeing an OCD specialist, is having a conversation with them about hoarding or concerns regarding hoarding and see if your provider can learn along with you to help support your loved one. And last but not least, and this gem really goes for everyone, whether you're dealing with hoarding or not, reflect on your expectations. As Gabrielle said, this is a slow, incremental process. Progress is slow and incremental. And as with many mental health or even physical health conditions that don't have a cure, having an expectation that everything will just get cleaned up, cleared up, fixed, what have you, it's often not realistic. But let me preface this with a heavy emphasis on what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there isn't hope. And that's worth saying again, because there is hope, family. But a huge piece for any of us wanting to be successful with things that matter most to us in life require realistic goals. And often, we don't have realistic goals. I like to think I'm pretty good at this now, but I still have my moments, family. I'm human. In mental health, oftentimes, nonprofits or community health organizations will promote making SMART goals. SMART being an acronym for S-specific. M, measurable, A, achievable, R, relevant, and T, time-bound. So if we're treatment planning and on the lovely hamster wheel of justification with insurance providers as to why a client or a patient evidences need for continued services, we have to show specific, measurable goals that can realistically be met or not within a certain time frame. And goals are always related back to that person's functioning. Since we've learned more broadly that disorders represent dysfunction or impairment to one or more areas of functioning for any given individual sufferer, our goals are targeted toward increasing functioning. And so, if I may, I want to challenge you, fam. I mean, we wouldn't be a family if we weren't, like, pushing each other's limits, right? Maybe just a little bit. (laughs) But my challenge is to take something that you have as an expectation for yourself or for your loved one, for your family, for a relationship, and see if you can flip this expectation into a goal or goals. If the expectation is, if we start treatment, we'll get better, then this exercise would look like sitting down and examining how will we know when we're getting better? What specific Measurable and achievable acts or things will we experience that are relevant and needed for our functioning and are time-specific to our concept of what getting better 
means. So if you're running a marathon, the ultimate, ultimate goal is to cross the finish line, right? And survive, I suppose. (laughs) But what if we broke that down into specific measurable goals? I can make it to mile marker one. And after I do, I can set a goal to make it to mile marker two. That is a lot easier to take on than saying, I can make it 26.2 miles, I think, I hope, I pray. So though we may wish that things could change in a dramatic or big way in a short amount of time, that expectation is just that, an expectation, but it's not an achievable goal. So break things down into littler goals. Make it tangible. Make it something that you know you can do. It might still be hard, but can we do just this one leg first? We do this in exposure and response prevention therapy too. When we create those fear hierarchies, the object isn't to get to the top now, although wouldn't we love it if everything under that would just disappear? But we start with the first step. And when we achieve it, we go to the second step. That creates a real, real restlessness within people. But in life and through experiences where things take time to get to where they are right now, and it took time to get this deeply entrenched within this distressing reality, not falling deeper into our struggles is a win, even if we're not moving forward. That is a win. So celebrate your wins and examine your expectations because sometimes we might find out that our only failure, if there really is even a failure, is not setting ourselves up for success because the win, as it were, isn't achievable. Mental health or not, we can all do this. Take an expectation, examine if it's even achievable or realistic with the goals that you can set up in your life. And if not, set goals for yourself that can support your ability to adapt to goals that are achievable. My goal with hoarding as any of the content that I've discussed on the OCD Family Podcast is to provide resources and support to all of you. And while I'm up and running now, I could still recall back when this was just an idea and I just wanted to start these conversations. And I had to set smart goals to get there. And there were a lot of them. And now, though maintaining these conversations are much easier, it still takes work. It still takes setting realistic goals. It still takes managing my expectations. So I'm going to do this too. And not just with the podcast. I'm going to examine an expectation this week and really look. Do I have goals set up that get me to my ultimate goal here? Is it even realistic? Is it even achievable? And I challenge you to try it too. You never know what growth may come out of it. And join me next week where I'm planning on actualizing my goal of bringing more awareness and understanding to obsessive compulsive personality disorder as I wrap up this five-week series on OCD-related disorders. But until then, fam, take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. 
The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like hoarding blokes that aren't a joke. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.